0: Hello, this is Dr. Anthony Orsini. And on this Memorial Day, I'd like to take a moment on behalf of the entire team at the Orsini Way to acknowledge the men and women who gave the ultimate sacrifice to protect our freedoms and our safety. As it has been said many times, freedom is not free. And if it weren't for the men and women who gave their lives and their families, whose sacrifice is unimaginable to most of us, there's no telling where we would be today. We sometimes take it for granted, but on this day, Let us take time to reflect and feel gratitude to each and every one of them. Having said that, so many others have sacrificed for us as well, and I'm talking about our veterans who served admirably, many of them injured, both physically and emotionally, and we also owe them our deepest respect. For those who need medical care, it is our responsibility to make sure that they receive the highest quality care. That is why I chose today on Memorial Day to replay an interview that first aired on October 6, 2020, and was one of our most popular episodes. On that day, I had the distinct privilege and honor to interview the Honorable Dr. David Shulkin, who was the ninth secretary of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. He was the man who took on the responsibility to make sure that our veterans that returned home got the very best health care when they needed it, and is responsible for many of the improvements in the VA system that are in place today. If you haven't heard this episode, I encourage you to listen during this Memorial Day week and to reflect and feel gratitude for our men and women who served this great nation, both living and dead. So without further delay, my interview with the Honorable Dr. David Shulkin. Well, I
1: think the single most difficult conversations that I had were When I had to speak to family members, wives, mothers and fathers of veterans that either sacrificed their life or had taken their own lives through suicide, and sitting down with people that clearly are not only deeply missing their loved ones, but continuing to replay in their own mind if they could have done anything differently, and knowing that this was in many ways a failure of a system that I had responsibility for, clearly were the most difficult conversations that I ever had to have.
2: Welcome to Difficult Conversations, lessons I learned as an ICU physician with Dr. Anthony Orsini. Dr. Orsini is a practicing physician and president and CEO of the Orsini Way. As a frequent keynote speaker and author, Dr. Orsini has been training healthcare professionals and business leaders how to navigate through the most difficult dialogues. Each week, you will hear inspiring interviews with experts in their field who tell their story and provide practical advice on how to effectively communicate. Whether you are a doctor faced with giving a patient bad news, a business leader who wants to get the most out of his or her team members, or someone who just wants to learn to communicate better, This is the podcast for you.
0: Well, welcome to another episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. This is Dr. Anthony Orsini, and I will be your host today and every Tuesday moving forward. I know I say we have an extra special guest every single week, but this time it is really incredible. Today, I am so honored to have with us the Honorable Dr. David J. Shulkin. The Honorable Dr. David Shulkin was the ninth secretary of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Nominated by President Trump to serve in his cabinet, Secretary Shulkin was confirmed by the U.S. Senate by a vote of 100 to 0. He was the only Trump cabinet member to receive a unanimous confirmation. Prior to serving as Secretary of the VA, Dr. Shulkin served as Undersecretary of Health under President Obama, for which he was also confirmed unanimously by the U.S. Senate. As Secretary, Dr. Shulkin represented the 21 million American veterans and was responsible for the nation's largest integrated healthcare system with over 1,200 sites of care, serving over 9 million veterans. The VA is also the nation's largest provider of graduate medical education and major contributor of medical research. It provides veterans with disability payments, education through the GI Bill, home loans, and even runs a national cemetery system. Prior to coming to VA, Secretary Shulkin was a widely respected healthcare executive having served as chief executives of leading hospitals and health systems, including Beth Israel in New York City and Marstown Medical Center in Northern New Jersey. And that's where I first met him. Secretary Shulkin has also held numerous physician leadership roles, including the chief medical officer at the University of Pennsylvania Health System, the hospital at the University of Pennsylvania, Temple University Hospital, and the Medical College of Pennsylvania Hospital. Secretary Shulkin has held academic positions, including the Chairman of Medicine and Vice Dean at Drexel University School of Medicine. Dr. Shulkin received his medical degree from the Medical College of Pennsylvania, his internship at Yale University School of Medicine, and a residency and fellowship in general medicine at the University of Pittsburgh Presbyterian Medical Center. He is board certified in internal medicine and received an advanced training in outcomes research and economics as a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Clinical Scholar at the University of Pennsylvania. Over his career, Secretary Shokan has been named as one of the top 100 physician leaders of hospitals and health systems by Becker's Hospital Review and one of the 50 most influential physician executives in the country by Modern Healthcare and Modern Physician. He has also previously been named 100 Most Influential People in American Healthcare by Modern Healthcare. Dr. Shulkin is currently the CEO of Shulkin Solutions, a company that provides solutions for a rapidly moving healthcare system. And his recently published book, which we're going to spend a lot of time talking about, is titled It Shouldn't Be This Hard to Serve Your Country Our Broken Government and the Plight of Veterans. And it's an amazing book, and I highly recommend it. Well, welcome, Dr. Shulkin, and I am just so honored to have you here. I'm glad to be with you. So I've been a huge fan, and we have a few things in common. First, I'm a graduate of Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine, and you graduate Medical College of Philadelphia, which is really right down the road. And then in reading your bio, you spent some time at Pennsylvania Hospital, University of Pennsylvania, Drexel Temple, MCP, and then I also did my residency and fellowship at Thomas Jefferson, which I think you have some ties to also, correct?
1: Yes. Yes. That's correct, right
0: so after starting my career at NYU, I went to Marstown Medical Center in two thousand and one and stayed there till two thousand and fourteen and I believe you were there from two thousand ten to two
1: thousand and fifteen is that correct yes that's
0: correct, and we met once or twice i'm sure you don't remember, but I do, and because i'm a real student of communication, the day that I met you and I knew you were the president of the hospital, I immediately felt. The, the word I thought about you was really genuine. You were very, very down to earth. You were extremely friendly. You were very engaging. I don't know if you remember, but we talked very briefly about the Breaking Bad News program that I was bringing to the residents there. And I really just wanted to say I really appreciate it. But I, it was a down to earth kind of genuine likability to you, and I, that's what really stands out. So I was really, really, very happy. I thought, well. Dr. Shulkin is not going to come on my podcast, but, you know, let me give it a try. He probably doesn't even remember me. But I want to say thank you because I reached out to you. You got back to me in less than an hour and said, sure. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. So, again, I want to say thank you. I'm glad to do it. I got a lot of questions and I'll try to honor your time. But my first question is, you've done a lot of medicine. You finished your training. You were a practicing internist. And even when you were at the VA, you still kept seeing patients. And we all go into different avenues of medicine. Some people go into private practice. Some people go into academics. Other people go into leadership. What made you take that path from the very beginning? Because you took that fellowship in economics right away. So is it something that you knew you always wanted to do that led you into the leadership role?
1: No, I think that I did. And what I advise people who come and ask me for career advice is, I just followed my instincts and followed my curiosity and allowed myself to explore areas that seemed both interesting and meaningful to me. And I can't say that there was a clear path when I did it. Today, physicians being involved in management or executive positions is certainly increasingly common. But when I finished my training, that was a very unheard of career path. Physicians just didn't go into management positions. And my fellowship directors at the University of Pennsylvania, a very academic program, I remember sat me down and said, listen, I hope the types of things that you're working on and publishing on sort of the real world applications of economics to the practice of medicine and this new area of understanding cost and quality in healthcare, I hope you enjoy it because you should consider it a hobby, not a professional path. The only real professional path that you should be pursuing is publications, research, and academics. And I remember acknowledging that, but saying, they may be right, but it really doesn't matter to me. What I'm interested in doing is in applying my knowledge into the real world environment, and I just followed my instincts. And that led to some very, very interesting opportunities for me.
0: And so you go down the leadership role and your career is well-documented. We spoke about it in the bio. And I'm going to get right over to maybe perhaps what's going to be the most difficult question for you to answer. Maybe not. So you're a physician, you're a healthcare leader, former secretary of the VA. The title of this podcast is Difficult Conversations. And in those three positions, you must have had a lot of difficult conversations What do you think is the most difficult conversation that you have had to have in any of those roles? And can you give anybody some advice about how to, is your approach the same? Is your approach different? And and how do they differ in, in each different role that you played?
1: Well, I think the single most difficult conversations that I had were when I had to speak to family members, wives, mothers and fathers of veterans that either, sacrificed their life or had taken their own lives through suicide and sitting down with people that clearly are not only deeply missing their loved ones, but continuing to replay in their own mind if they could have done anything differently and knowing that this was in many ways a failure of a system that I had responsibility for clearly were the most difficult conversations that I ever had to have.
0: I can't even imagine how difficult that is. Uh, The premise of the whole podcast and what I do is really that, you know, as a neonatologist, having to tell someone that their baby died, and I talk about it in my book, about a conversation that I witnessed between a physician telling someone that their son had died and how badly that went. And I always say that the most difficult conversation I have is telling somebody that their baby's going to die or have continued developmental delay or problem with that. And so there's a lot of misconceptions on how to approach that. And in medicine, I think we continue to train young physicians incorrectly. One of the things that they're being told over and over again that this is about information. It's about provide as much information as possible to the patient. And although that's important... I think the most important thing is to obtain that relationship and show them that you care and that you're with them. And I guess that's very similar to speaking to a family of a veteran who's passed away. Any advice you can give? Well, I think
1: that most importantly, it's to create an environment where people that are suffering and have something to say can be heard. And it's not about providing information or educating somebody about what really happened it's letting them explain to you what their experience is and that's very powerful second thing I would say is is that where there is fault in the process whether it was when I was running private hospitals and I had to sit with families and explain that something happened in the hospital a medical error happened that, led to the harm or death of a family member or whether it was, as I was describing before in the VA, where the system let the veteran down, I think saying that you're sorry and acknowledging that more could be done and that part of the purpose of the conversation is to figure out how this could never happen again, what we could do to prevent it, that's very important. And I will tell you, I think these are very, very personal discussions. These aren't representing institutions. These are people sitting down and talking about things. And so some of the families that I described before that had lost sons, wives of veterans who were severely injured, even though I no longer am the secretary of the VA, I maintain those relationships today. They let me know about their life events. They let me know how things are going. We continue to communicate because once you make that human connection, it's much more than just about a particular institutional issue.
0: So you're a problem solver. That's one thing that comes through through your book, through your career that, you know, it's clear from learning about your career that you love a challenge, you love to problem solve. And I have all these questions ready to ask, but I'm going off the questions a little bit because I really want to know so we have a problem in medical education training right now is that we're not spending enough time training medical students, training residents, and there's so many senior physicians who are just not good at communicating. And I individually trained in role-playing over 5,000 doctors so far, both senior and young doctors who are residents. What could we do? This is a problem. We have a problem with communication, and I'm going to ask you about patient experience later because that really what I want to get into with you. But how could we fix that at the medical school level, at the residency level, and get rid of all this misconceptions? You know, I can't tell you how many young doctors told me that when I asked them, how do you give bad news? Have you learned anything from this? And they said, yeah, when I was a resident, I was told by a senior physician that giving bad news is like a Band-Aid. You just rip it off and get out of there. So this is a problem. As a problem solver, how do you think we can fix this?
1: Well, I think it should come as no surprise that this continues to be a problem because we continue to select physicians to enter medical school in the same way. And that's based upon test taking and academic performance. And there is no real serious consideration given to the attributes of what everyone hopes for from their doctor, which is humanity and the ability to experience empathy and to display that and to be able to communicate effectively so if we continue to continue to select based on test taking abilities we're going to continue to have deficiencies in these types of people that are becoming our doctors in the future but that it's not just who you select it's also the whole system of reinforcement while you're a medical student and a resident We reward on academic skills, and in the case of residency, often on technical skills, but unless somebody really crosses the line ethically or behaviorally, there really are no positive or negative rewards for these types of attributes that you're talking about, about the ability to connect with people and to communicate effectively.
0: What I have found is that there is a real desire of physicians and nurses to want to learn to communicate, that they're generally compassionate people, but that at a higher level, it's still not being placed really at the top of their concerns. In fact, when I came up with the Breaking Bad News program while I was at NYU, it took me almost 10 years to convince someone to let me start teaching the residents with this improvisational role-playing. And since then, I've been doing it for 10 years. But I also think that we as a group, and I think the patient experience thing is helping a a little more, but we really have to bring more to the forefront communications. When I round with residents, sometimes I'll ask them, did you call the mother? And they'll say, yes, I called the mom, I gave her an update. And then I'll say to them, what'd you say? And you see their faces on rounds. Like, what do you mean? What did I say? I'm like, no, I want to know word for word what you said. What'd you talk about? How long were you on the phone? And by the end of the rotation, they start to get it that it's not about just the words you say, but it's it's how you say it. And I think as a healthcare system, we need to bring communication. I'm, I'm hoping that in a small way, this podcast and the work I do with the Rossini way is helping with that. Yeah. So, But I think they generally appreciate it. So I could talk about this all day, but let's move on because I really want to talk about your book. I read it. It's phenomenal. I'm sure that it's selling a lot of books and I really want to talk about it. The first thing about your book that, was impressive to me was really the dedication as soon as i read the dedication i i think that said it all right and you dedicated the book to the veterans their families said this is why you went into washington in the first place and i really felt that that was just a true statement and really if you go back there were people that thought you were crazy to go into government right
1: right a lot
0: of people to talk <laughs> and it, as you found it's not for the faint of heart but you had a calling. I understand you're in the book you talk about your father, you grew up in an army base and your father was a psychiatrist in the army base. How much do you think your father influenced you becoming a physician and then towards eventually wanted to serve the VA? Well, my dad
1: was a psychiatrist and he was probably smart enough to know that if he overtly or directly tried to influence me to do something, I might have done the opposite <laughs> rebel, like like many people in their adolescence making decisions about what they might want to do. So I never felt any direct pressure or direction or influence from either of my parents in terms of what I wanted to do. They gave me the space to figure out what I wanted to do. And, you know, I appreciate that. I don't think I had any particular commitment or or desire to help give back to our veterans then I would hope, any other American. I think that the regular people that I talk to really do appreciate the sacrifice that these men and women give for our country. It's a volunteer army, as we all know, with less than 1% of people in this country serving, and they really do the work for the rest of us to allow us to lead the types of lives that we are able to lead, and so when I was called and asked if I could help. I was the CEO of a hospital. I said, how could I say no? If I believe that I can help and give back, there was no doubt that I was going to do that.
0: And so you leave Marsdale Medical Center, where I was, you go ahead to serve for the VA as undersecretary. I think your first day was February 15, 2017. And you get there on your very first day. And at the time, the VA was going through difficult times. There was uh, talks about wait times and and they were receiving, as you say in your book, the wrong kind of headlines. Can you tell us about on that first day what you realized you had up in front of you?
1: Yeah, we're actually talking about 2015 when I arrived. My well, apologies. Um, I was first contacted by the White House in 2014. In 2014 was what was called the wait time crisis, where Congress had exposed the fact that VA had hundreds of thousands of veterans waiting for care, not able to get access, some of them being alleged to have been harmed or even died waiting for care. And that was a national story. And I remember sitting there as a citizen, reading about it, seeing it on TV and saying, this is really horrible. If there's any group of Americans that deserve better that deserve you know the best that this country can offer in terms of healthcare it's, it's our veterans and this shouldn't be happening and i remember probably saying what so many people say when they see headlines they say boy i wish i could do something but not thinking that you really ever will have that chance and then shortly afterwards the white house called me and i knew this was my chance and so that's that's when i raised my hand to say that i would help it took About 10 months to get through the vetting process, the head of the VA healthcare system called the undersecretary needs to be Senate confirmed. The president is not going to announce a nominee unless they are absolutely sure that this is a candidate that could get Senate confirmed. And so it was a very extensive vetting process. So I arrived at the VA after my confirmation in July of 2015 or about 11 months after the wait time crisis was first exposed. And the place I thought was in dramatic need of a plan to fix the wait time issues. And that's immediately what I began to do. That was my focus to make sure that no veterans were waiting for care who had urgent medical problems.
0: You fixed it relatively quickly. You talk about in your book, A Stand Down Order. Can you tell us more about how you went about fixing that? Because it happened pretty quickly, I think anyway.
1: The most important thing for me was to get a system in place that could prioritize which veterans needed to be seen at what time. Previously to my arrival, the VA treated all appointments the same. So you could have a urgent medical appointment or you could have a routine medical appointment and they would stay in the same place in line. And so I immediately changed that so that we could identify those patients who had urgent medical needs. Once we did that, I called for what I named a national stand down where we stopped what we were doing across the entire country in the VA system. This is now you know, several hundred thousand employees work in the VA. And I said, we will do nothing but see those patients with urgent medical problems. There were 57,000 veterans waiting for an urgent medical problem more than 30 days. And those 57,000 became the focus of the VA until we saw those patients. Several days later, that list of 57,000 was down to less than 1,000. We contacted all those patients, we had seen them all. And once I knew that, we had taken care of the backlog of patients with urgent medical problems. I knew that the only way to prevent that from ever building up again and repeating that terrible problem would be to put in place same-day appointments across the VA. So if you had an urgent medical problem, you would know if you arrived at a VA, you would be seen that day. There would be no wait time. And by December of 2016, as President Obama was thinking about his last month in office. I was able to say that we had put in place same day appointments at every VA medical center across the country. And to ensure that that would remain in place and that we'd be accountable for that, I published our wait times publicly. And to this day, you can see VA wait times on the public website to see whether we're honoring that commitment.
0: That's fantastic. And yes, and and that ties into my patient experience question that I'm waiting to ask. But in the meantime, my next question is the difference. There were very few people, if any, I don't know if you were the only one who really worked in the Obama administration and the Trump administration. It really wasn't very common, correct?
1: No, it was not. I was the only one in the Trump cabinet who had come from the Obama administration.
0: That's what I thought. In your book, you say, I'm not an Obama guy. I'm not a Trump guy. I'm here for the veterans. But it was a very different way that both administrations went about things. Can you tell us the differences and how you were able to switch over to navigate through the two different environments?
1: Well, I like to think that I didn't switch. I like to think that I had a game plan. I felt like I had Found a formula for how to begin to address the problems in the VA that had been there for decades, that had spanned administrations, Republican and Democrat. And that I was implementing a plan that not only I believed made sense for veterans, but was showing that it worked. And whether it was a Democratic president or a Republican president, that was the plan I was going to stick with. And what I did, much You know, in line with my academic roots, I published those plans. I wrote in the New England Journal what my plan was to fix access. I talked and gave talks, whether at the National Press Club or on television or in academic journals about what I was going to do and how I was going to fix it. And I stayed true to that plan. Now, you work in the context of the environment and who your boss is, in this case, the president, and there were some things that were more difficult to get done in the Obama administration than they were in the Trump administration. And there were some things that were more difficult in the Trump administration than the Obama administration. And so you would continually try to adjust. But the most important thing was not to deviate from your principles and not to yield to political pressures, because I believed, much like when I ran a hospital, in the private sector, like Morristown Medical Center, I was there representing the patients. And this is how I view things, as a doctor first. And you know, doctors, as you know, you and I both took the Hippocratic Oath, we will do no harm. I was not willing to yield to political arguments or pressure and have the end result be that something happened to veterans that I didn't think was the right thing. And that ultimately led to me no longer Being able to operate in the Trump administration was a difference in political views about what the right thing to do for veterans were. But I will say that during my time as secretary in the Trump administration, we got a lot done. The ability of President Trump to allow me the freedom to do things, to get stuff done and not be bogged down in the traditional ways of doing things allowed me to get huge improvements done in the VA. We got 11 major bills, all with bipartisan support. There is no other agency in the government under the Trump administration that had that type of bipartisan support that was able to get so much done through Congress and the White House. So there were some positive things to it as well, until, of course, there came a time that it was no longer positive for me and I knew that the right thing to do would be to stick to my principles. And ultimately, President Trump decided to make a change.
0: Both President Obama and President Trump went about things, as you said, very differently. One was much more methodical, the other one shot from the hip and maybe made some mistakes. Somewhere in the middle might be a perfect way of doing it, but you were able to ad- not adapt, but you were able to succeed really to get things done in both administrations, which it really is a testament to you. In your book, I was chuckling when you were describing your first meeting with President Trump or President Elect Trump, I guess he was, and you describe it in such detail. And now that we've gotten to know President Trump on TV, you can certainly see exactly the way he just moved around and and went so fast. And I I thought that was just a a funny, uh, funny story that you left there he had mentioned something about you being the new secretary, but when you left, you didn't even know that he was going so fast, you didn't even really know if that's what he said. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, President Trump likes to keep you sort of on edge and keep you guessing. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's part of the way that he does things. What I think is interesting is what I write about in my book, what I experienced myself, at the time, very, very few people had insights into the way that President Trump operated. But if you take a look at, the experience that I had that I've described in the book, not only from that initial meeting, but all the way through all of my contacts with the president till the very end where he tweeted me out of office, this experience has now been repeated time and time and time again by other people who have come forth and told their stories about their experience in working in the Trump administration. So in some ways, I think that The detail in which I describe things is so clearly now understood by many, many people who have heard about these experiences now many times over.
0: Absolutely. I want to switch over and talk about patient experience, reading about you and knowing you a little bit. People have called you the champion of patient experience, patient experience, the experience of the VA. Those were all things that were very, very important with you. And I believe when you were undersecretary, you and Secretary McDonald started a patient experience program at the VA. And by the way, I was at a meeting, a conference last year at the Beryl Institute for Patient Experience. And the patient experience department for the VA gave a presentation and the, the amazing things that they were doing was nothing short of remarkable. And I was so impressed with what they're doing. But patient experience is really very important. And the one thing that you did was you decided that you were going to publish or make public the patient experience scores for the VA. And that's something that I feel very strongly about. My It's all in the delivery program that I give to many hospitals, concentrates just on communication skills. And we've been able to improve patient experience scores dramatically just by teaching doctors and nurses how to communicate. But I know that I know in, in, in a lot of hospitals, there's a lot of pushback to make public the patient experience scores, specifically by the physicians. And in fact, one hospital that I know started doing it, and within three months, the physicians shut it down. How strongly do you feel that that's important? And tell us how you were able to start that patient experience program. I was so impressed.
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, the reason why in every position I've held, whether it's been the CEO of a hospital or the secretary or undersecretary of the VA, that I've always put on my white coat, my stethoscope, and gone out and taken care of patients myself. It's not because I think that I'm God's gift to medicine or that there aren't other doctors that could do as good or better job than me, but it really is because I've always felt that that's what the job was. If you're the leader of an organization, you really have to understand the impact of your decisions and the type of organization that you're running. And the only way I know how to do that is to see how your customers are experiencing your product. And so when I would be secretary of the VA and I would go see patients, I get to see how does the electronic health record work? How does it work to order medications or labs? What are your coworkers attitudes like? What is the ability to get help when you need a consult? What's the patient telling you about the experience? And so that fundamentally kept me grounded in understanding what my job as a leader was and what the patient experience was. In terms of trying to put in place the large program at the VA, a lot of that credit belongs to Secretary McDonald. Secretary McDonald was the CEO of a large consumer product company before becoming secretary. He had been CEO of Procter & Gamble for much of his career and so he came at it from a very consumer oriented point of view i came at it from a very doctor patient point of view that was a nice combination for us to be able to drive mm-hmm. an improvement in the experience and i would just say for those that in medicine that resist that and you know i think as doctors we all understand the physician's perspective that many physicians believe it's more important to do the right thing medically and to focus on the science and not necessarily on whether your patient likes you. But for those who don't really understand why it's so important to be consumer focused and to understand the patient experience, I would say this is the reason why so many people in medicine now complain that they've lost control of their profession because this ultimately needs to be, healthcare needs to be a consumer-driven system. It needs to be a system that represents those things that matter most to patients. That's what this is about. And if you don't understand the patient experience and you're not willing to be transparent about it, you're never really going to participate in it. You are gonna be continually sidelined off to be a technician And uh, ultimately, this is why so many physicians are feeling burned out and looking to leave medicine because they no longer feel that they're in control of the field that they thought that they would be when they entered medicine.
0: I'm so happy you said that because when I give my workshops, I tell physicians that when you're able to form that relationship with the patient, which is what patient experience is all about, and I think there was a study at the University of Florida that showed you can form a relationship if you do it correctly within 56 seconds with someone by being a genuine person, by sitting down. But that when you're able to form relationships and you really make that connection with each and every one of your patients, you go home a lot happier at the end of the day, I think. And you feel less like a factory worker and more like you made a difference. Even if you practice good medicine and I saved a couple of lives that day or cured a couple of babies, I go home knowing that I really bonded with that family. And, and it does decrease physician burnout. In fact, next week, I interviewed Dr. Dyke Drummond, who's an expert on physician burnout, and we talk about this, but I don't think physicians or hospital administrators understand that how important it is to the well-being of the patient, but also the well-being of the doctor or the nurse. And patient experience is tied to better outcomes, right? Better, better patient compliance. And it seems, although a lot of hospital administrators are saying it's number one, it's a difficult thing to crack. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I would agree.
1: And I know, at least for me, when I was a resident, I injured my back in a water skiing incident where I needed surgery at my own hospital that I was training at. And I got to experience the patient experience personally and see what it was like to deal with a surgeon who was technically very good and had the worst bedside manner I could imagine. Mm -hmm. He would check on me do his post op rounds from the doorway. He just didn't even want to step into the room because it probably in his mind would commit him to a longer conversation or having to answer questions or to interact. And so, you know, having that experience and looking at things through the eyes of a patient, I think, changes you and changes your perspective about being a doctor.
0: I agree. It gets better for everyone. So I know you have a hard stop coming up soon. We only have a few minutes left. I want to get a, just your comments about telemedicine real quickly during COVID crisis, because I'm all about the patient experience and making that connection. You brought telemedicine to the VA, or you at least made it more common, and that helped a lot. Telemedicine is great. It's convenient. It's difficult to to form that human interaction with telemedicine. In fact, we're doing some training programs right now for some hospitals to help them with their communication skills so that they can bond a little bit through telemedicine. Do you think telemedicine is here at this level to stay, or do you think that if we keep doing more and more telemedicine, we're going to miss that, that relationship?
1: Well, I, I think there's a couple answers to the question. I think, you know, if you're looking at the number of telemedicine visits across the country and you are looking at it from a numbers point of view, I think that we will See a decline in the number of telehealth visits from the high point where people just weren't able to go into the doctor's office or weren't able to, you know, go into a hospital to get care. But it's clearly going to stay way above where it was pre COVID. I think the changes in reimbursement the changes in regulations, the changes in the patient experience, people who had never accessed or tried telehealth, I think fundamentally will change the way that people utilize telehealth forever. And so we're going to see a much higher level than pre-COVID, but maybe not as high as what we're seeing right now.
0: Do you think that'll be a good thing?
1: Well, I think telehealth is an excellent thing that what we we need to, and we did this at the VA, utilize telehealth appropriately. It can provide care in the home, it can provide access to people that frankly have had a challenge in getting transportation. It can provide easier access for the doctors, and in some cases can be more therapeutic, like in telebehavioral health. I think it's easier in some cases for patients to express themselves over a video than if they were having to sit in front of a person. But what I was going to say is, I think, you know, when I say that we're going to come down to a certain level and stabilize, that's with what we think about as telemedicine today. I don't think we're going to, I think we're at a very early stage where telemedicine for most people means a tele-visit, a video visit across a phone. And I think that this is just the very early stage of where we're going in virtual care. We have to now transition from just using a video to have a talk with a doctor and a patient to one that really adds much more significant value. So it no longer is just an episodic care, but it's more continuous care, one where we can use tools like artificial intelligence to improve the way that we make decisions, one that provides a doctor and a patient more information that they can share together, actually sharing the chart together, discussing and showing pictures together so that you can actually improve the communication and the patient experience. And so I think we're just at the very early stages of how technology has been to impact our ability to talk in the future, but I'm very optimistic that remote monitoring and advances in the way that we use this technology are going to dramatically improve the doctor-patient experience.
0: And anything we can do to help those people have difficulty getting to the doctors certainly will be a good thing. One final question, Dr. Shulkin, you've had so many accomplishments in your life through the private, public sector. Career-wise, what are you most proud of, do you think?
1: I think there is no doubt that my answer to that are the people that I had a chance to impact their career. And one of the things that's always been important to me has been in being able to be a mentor and in training future leaders in the country. Because when you do a job and you get something done, you feel proud about that. But when you influence somebody's life who goes on and Creates their own impact on the world, that's a force multiplier. And so I'm most proud of those people that I had an influence in their life who are now on doing great things and leading organizations of their own. And to me, that's going to be a lasting impact.
0: I can really relate to that when I do my training of other physicians and I teach a young physician how to communicate and how to build relationships. I know that that physician's likely going to have about 200,000 patient interactions in their life and if I can have a small part in how they treat their patients it just uh, makes my life meaningful and gets me excited and makes me want to do even more so I think that's a fantastic answer my mother always used to tell me doctor shulkin always leave a place better than you found it and one thing that comes clear in reading your bio and knowing you and reading your book is that you certainly do that I want to thank you on behalf of everyone, on behalf of the veterans, for all the work that you've done. You truly make every place better than you found it. And so thank you so much for that.
1: Great. Thank you.
0: If somebody wants to get in touch with you, just do it through Shulkin Solutions.
1: I'd love people to follow me on Twitter at David Shulkin. And then I do have a professional website, shulkinsolutions.com.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much. And I will share the links with you also on our notes. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and We're available on Apple, Spotify, and other formats on Google Podcasts. If you need to find more about the Orsini Way, please uh, contact me at www.theorsiniway.com. Dr. Shulkin, I know you have to go. Thank you so much. I am very honored to have you on this podcast, and I hope we can speak again soon.
2: Great. Thank you.
0: Take care. Thank you.
2: If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment and review to contact Dr. Orsini and his team or to suggest guests for future podcasts visit us at theorsiniway.com.